0: This is just interesting, this isn't directed at anyone in particular, but if you feel like it's directed towards you, that's fine. Nothing, in my view, is more reprehensible than those habits of mind in the intellectual that induce avoidance. That characteristic turning away from a difficult and principled position, which you know to be the right one, but which you decide not to take. You do not want to appear too political, You are afraid of seeming controversial. You want to keep a reputation for being balanced, objective, moderate. Your hope is to be asked back, to consult, to be on a board or a prestigious committee. And so, to remain within the responsible mainstream, someday you hope to get an honorary degree, a big prize, perhaps even an ambassadorship. For intellectual, these habits of mind are corrupting par excellence. If anything can denature, neutralize, and finally kill a passionate intellectual life, it is the internalization of such habits. Personally, I have encountered them in one of the toughest of all contemporary issues, Palestine, where fear of speaking out about one of the greatest injustices in modern history has hobbled Blinkered, muzzled, many who know the truth and are in a position to serve it. For despite the abuse and vilification that any outspoken supporter of Palestinian rights and self determination earns for him or herself, the truth deserves to be spoken, represented by an unafraid and compassionate intellectual. Oh, baby. Comrades and friends, hello. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. You probably figured that out because we're talking about stuff that you barely understand. But we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna make it a lot clearer for you. I promise. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, and I'm uh, really happy to introduce our guest tonight. Uh, Jamila Davy is a, a professor uh, at the Delaware College of Art and Design. She's a scholar of uh, comparative literature and Eastern literature, and she's also a community activist here, right here in Wilmington, right here where we live. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about all of that. Um, before we get back into the sort of the Eastern stuff, and, and I'm, I, I want to ask you how, just how you got into it and how it inf- what informed you to sort of get into that sort of study. But uh, before that, where are you from? Like, uh, how'd you grow up? What was it like? Um, how did it uh, maybe sort of direct you or motivate you into a uh, a life of, of academia and uh, scholarship?
1: Uh, yeah, great question. Well, I am from a small town in Indiana, actually, from northeastern Indiana. Um, and I, you know, harbored a desire from a young age for an elsewhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, that and I, so I, I was like set on going to college from, you know, for, for a while. Um, and, um, you know, college was transformative formative for me. So, uh, um, you know, I showed up an English major and left a philosophy major, but took a lot of like comparative literature courses, like in, in literature and translation. Uh, and, uh, um, so, um, that kind of set me on, on my path, you know, of, of, um, you know, turning my truth inside out And um, uh, while I was there, I got really into uh, radio as well. And that ended up being a path for me too, like, because it was avant-garde music that I was getting into as well. And it had a culture that went with it. And and, uh, so, you know, just like, uh, and today I teach a lot of like liberal arts classes and humanities. Um, You know, my training is in Middle Eastern studies and um, comparative literature and Islamic studies, women's and gender studies. Religious studies, um, but with Arabic, you know, as um, a foundation. Um, But it was, you know, you know, philosophical inquiry and you know the humanistic endeavor uh, that I really, that really like. I got the the seed.
0: You had the seed. You wanted to go explore. Yes, it's interesting because I have a very good friend of mine who I'm going to see for the new year. Happy New Year, everybody! Uh, If you're listening to this before, enjoy it. If you're listening to this after. You know, but uh, my, my friend Owen is from uh, northern Indiana too. Oh, wow. Warsaw. Is that a okay. Moscow Moscow okay. Warsaw Moscow or yeah. right, some it has an Eastern European name, but yeah. that's, that's where he's from. And he has sort of the same um, perspective. He went into the sciences. He's a chemist and got a Ph.D. in chemistry. But it's a different field, but the same sort of um, like I got a. I just gonna focus on something and go do something different because it's sort of I'm out here doing this. So I, I, I'm familiar with that that sort of motivation, you know.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um and I can say too that for me, um uh, so it was a roundabout path for me. So I finished my undergraduate degree and I was like, I need to like pay the rent. <laughs> that was actually my next Feel goal. Like, oops, so oops. <laughs> so it was to like remain in Chicago. Uh, and not return to Northeast Eastern Indiana. Although I, you know, I make a pilgrimage there regularly. I love my family. You know, Um and you went to, family you, there. We went to Northwestern. In, I did. In I went to Northwestern Edmonton or Chicago. Whatever yeah, absolutely. And I stayed in the Chicago area for about a decade overall. And uh, and but when I was done, I studied you know Western philosophy um, as you know undergrad um, and, uh, but afterwards. Just the
0: straight up European stuff.
1: Yeah. You're like, you're
0: like Kant. You're, you're all into
1: Kant. I was into Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Nietzsche. and Deleuze. Okay. But,
0: okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> you got so, into a
0: thing. You were in yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and you know, I, there are little things that I touched on, you know, like I, I did actually read my first, um, I read, um, some Assegebach, um, is like in my, probably my final semester, at final semester there. And I read Jean Genet and, Um, and France Fanon, you know, these are some of the things that would have pointed in the direction where I ended up going, but I, you know, hadn't really um, gotten there. The closest I'd gotten kind of to this world of exploration came through, like, actually from WNUR, the radio station I worked at, like I did, um, you know, avant-garde rock and roll and free improvised music, but I was also getting into the world stuff as well and got more and more interested in um, ethnographic music and it was actually, you know, so I got to the end of Western philosophy. Not that I, like, actualized it, but I got to the, you know, the end where it's, like, melting. This right? is the you stuff know? you need
0: to know. Yeah, kind of
1: thing, yeah. Well, or or that it's, like, um, you know, caving in on itself. You know? Uh, 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 post-structuralism, post-humanism, um, and, um, and then I encountered Eastern philosophy uh, and, and spiritual traditions and things like that. So um, I became really interested in both Islamic mysticism and Vedanta at that time, and 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 I was really interested in musical traditions and things like that. So I got really into that stuff, and um, was for a long time. You know, it took me fifteen years to get back to graduate school because I followed my life path, um, and uh, was really interested in both those domains, and kind of interested in pursuing higher ed in those areas, but. Um, you know, I couldn't decide, you know, between which path to take. But I was definitely humbled by the idea that, you know, India had like 300 languages, that, like over a million people spoke, you know, like that was humbling.
0: Something's going on. Like something's <laughs> going
1: on there. Yeah. yeah like, how do you get at that? You know, how yeah. do you get at that? Yeah. Um, in the end, you know, Arabic seems simpler, um, uh, but it turns out Arabic is diglossic. And so there's more. It's not just one language and all Well, that. that's
0: what's interesting about, and, and again... I had to dig into sort of like your background a little bit, but that's the cool thing about Syed, who I've been reading, and this because number one, it's sort of about the Orientalism that you explain. So if people don't sort of understand what that is, it's just more of like a it's a cultural depiction of what it is for the for the thing that it isn't. So if you're in the West, it's sort of like the cartoon that you think of, and uh, what's in Arabia, that's Oriental basically it's the easiest way i can explain it to, to people but he also came at it as you did through music not, not maybe not new music he was a classical musician and a, and a, and somebody who uh did classical critique of, of of composers but he came to sort of the same this the same conclusion you did uh through music which i think is extremely mm. interesting
1: mm. Well, can you elaborate uh how well, or so
0: There's a, a, um, maybe we'll find it, or maybe I'll play it on my phone. But there is a conversation that I heard him do right before he died. And they're talking about Wagner. Hmm. Because it's like, uh, oh, you know, he's a Nazi, but what is is this? But people think of him as this. And there's this long conversation. And it gets to the end of the conversation, and his critique is... Sort of the thing that I read as the cold open, He's like, look, uh, intellectuals have this idea, but it's wrong. Um, you ha- there, there's there's more to it than that. Um, there's a um, there's an artistic element to it, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just very interesting to me that it took some sort of artistic endeavor, a creative endeavor, that is abstract. You know, listen to world music, mm-hmm. listen to avant-garde rock, whatever. I'm like, there's something else going on here. Yeah. I gotta I gotta look into this a little further. And I feel like that's the Saeed path.
1: Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Yes.
0: that's I find that cool. Yeah. Because I'm a big music guy too, but I don't yeah. really... Well, to be honest with you, this is a great question. I want to get to the DCAD thing. Because I think it's cool. Um, I'm sort of someone who's, like, appreciates the creative endeavor without ever really being able to do it. Um, like fine art or writing. It's just—it's the... It escapes me somehow. But how, how did you... Did, did you decide that, that you were going to sort of make that jump into sort of like... Uh, making the connection between literature and art and, and social critique? Do you know what I mean?
1: Well... Um, um, yeah, I mean, um, definitely like... Uh, my own like academic work was definitely um, connecting those things for sure, um, and so that was something like in the DNA of like my, my big my dissertation project, because um, I was you know very focused on uh, a writer who was definitely an artist and a filmmaker, uh, and you know um, a novelist who was also you know deeply engaged in a deep critique um, in her work. Um, and, uh, so for sure, definitely always engaged, um, um, engage, you know, finding engagement in these ways. Um, and being a DCAD, um, yeah, I have the opportunity there to, I work, um, as a, as a writing tutor with students one-on-one all the time. And I teach, um, writing and literature courses as well as a non-Western art course, which, um, I get to teach. I teach it in the spring, so I'm excited to be um, going back to that next semester. And um, yeah, you know, in this context, you know, and this... do the students come to that?
0: Um, are they looking for that? Or are they exposed? Like, how? How? What's the? Um, how? Do, how are the students taking that? Because it's that's the big question of of sort of orientalism, or how? How? How are they? And and because every, there's a lot of things going on in the culture that would maybe be uh, provocative um, how, how do they take it when you when you teach that stuff because I know just 20 years ago um, you know when I was just getting a bachelor's degree this was not a thing and it's interesting that it is a thing now and I wonder how like undergraduate students um, how are they coming to it How how is that
1: yeah, so you know, of course, like, like all ideas are and, and opinions are my own and and, and no one else's. Well, believe uh, <laughs> me, believe
0: me, I I'm I say the same, exact same thing.
1: Uh, so you know, you know, America is awfully multicultural. I'll I'll say that um, for starters. Um, and um, so you know. And you know, I teach. I also teach at Goldie Beacon College, actually, and I'm teaching my world literature class there. So this you're semester. teaching your
0: world literature class to business students.
1: Uh, and no to English majors, you know, because this okay. is it's a three. What a... are
0: they English majors like? Well, how do they that? That's a. I wonder if you see a, a distinct sort of um, differentiation between the English majors in a sort of junior college uh, business. Uh, setting and a, and a really full sort of like fine arts, liberal arts setting. Well,
1: it's interesting because, you know, it's, it's, it's DCAD that's the two-year associate's degree and it's, it's Goldie Beacom is a four-year, you know, division two NCAA school, you know, so, um, but yeah, it's a different environment. It's a completely different environment. Um, so, um. Yeah, it's quite different. So I want to go back to the DCAD question because these kids are really receptive to it, actually. And so many of them, like today, like so many um, students are really into manga and anime. And they they just can't – they love studying Japanese culture and Chinese culture. um, And they're really into that. And it's a, a, you know, primarily minority-serving institution, too. So there's a lot of, you know, people who are very interested in – you know, the pre-Columbian Americas and, you know, art of the African continent. And there's a ton of history and um, religion and lenses that we go into with all of that as well. So there's, you know, it's it's overwhelming, though. Um, so, you know, there's so much to learn. And as an instructor, uh, it's humbling every single time I teach it because, you know, the first thing we do is, is we deconstruct this idea of non-Western because Western is, non-Western is still centering the Western Experience and you know it's you know what name could we replace it with is a good question um, and there is you know there's a way that the art history discipline has uh, has also grown up with colonization like they came they went hand in hand you know like exploring new countries and stealing their artifacts and imposing a view of art on them uh, it was a part of the whole thing so we like start with that frame. Um, but then we go way back you know then we go to we go to india and then we go to china but you know you know, these are you know cultures you know vast cultures so this whole idea that it'd be a survey to cover them is insulting and you don't you never do that uh, but you try to um uh, go into some case studies you know in different you know you know moments in time and create some frameworks and um try to look you know at these these, these visual cultures and take something from them um, it's a fun course in terms of, like, they get to do a research project that they kind of build up on their own over the course of the semester. And so this isn't their culminating semester there, but as sophomores, college sophomores, that's a, you know, it's a big, you know, you know uh, uh, lift, you know, on their parts to conceptualize a endeavor, you know, with so much framing to be done.
0: Yeah, I think that's what, like, is so exciting to me. I'm like, oh, these kids are really sort of um, embarking on a very complicated uh journey about trying to like you said it's a survey but but at least trying to break that differentiation down like well we think of this kind of art a certain way because we've been told that this is this kind of art and this is this kind of art and we really don't we don't look at it as all sort of influencing itself or or, or together and so yeah it's just neat that that uh, people are more uh, enthusiastic to sort of dip into that because it has, as I said, it has cultural, social, and political ramifications that I think are incredibly important.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And as, you know, young artists themselves, um, you know, they find their, themselves inside or outside, you know, the discourses of what defines an artist as well, you know, um, as young people like on that, on that path. Um so I find they're, you know, open and um, interested. Um, and one of the things that you know, for me, as um, you know, moving across disciplines and things like that. Again, like my training is in classical Islamic studies, you know, and religion and women and gender. And uh, and I, you know, I loved um, the art history courses I had in undergrad as well. Um, and um, you know, so much of. Um, material culture and you know visual art is tied to you know um philosophy and religion and, and in various ways as well so in aesthetics you know there's it's this whole you know the humanities so um all these things go together um but um the um art history discipline in particular, it's really interesting how um Islamic art is treated and that it is part of it's taken as part of the western tradition so it's it's they get that in like semester one and I'm teaching semester three and like you get you know maybe they'll give you some like middle eastern art and within the contemporary artists, but they don't give you you don't get islam or you know well, they or, do or
0: Islamic or, art at like the first year what what are they are they doing sort of like the what are
1: they doing? I think it's the, the late antique world, you know, and they get Persia and with Mesopotamia. Okay, so you know, just get like the basic and ancient Egypt. But again, you I, know. I feel
0: like that's probably the same. That's sort of like the same perspective as you're getting. Like this is the thing. Um, it's I I do, I do feel like that's a little bit through the eye of like. Uh, you get that in London a hundred years ago, probably. Like if you went if you went to a a, a university in London or England or. Anywhere in the West, Paris or something, a hundred years ago, you'd probably get the same instruction, I would think.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I I know that I'm sure um, the instructors dealing with this material, you know, are doing it in engaging ways oh, sure. and, and all kinds of things. But the way textbooks have been structured, um, the way that it was like, you know, um, the way that it's that yeah, this partic- particular textbook, you know, structures it. It sees you know, it's on it's the classical art model. Um, and I also teach, I have taught this like massive humanities course, um, at, at, um, Goldie as well. And it's like, you know, beginning of time to 1200 or something like that. And it's multidisciplinary humanities. So, but it's similar topics in a certain way. So it's interesting to see how, you know, those things get folded together and how, you know, the ancient, um, pre-Islamic world, um, and the late antique, you know, Islamic cultures get tied into this, you know, Western um, narrative of development. But what and and that's interesting. And I think that that there's something there for us to go back and look at. I also I think about the perfect framework to the Western
0: narrative of development. I think that's a perfect framework to look at, like to to, to decide whether what if if the thing you're looking at is sort of within the framework of like a, a Western narrative, doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but you got to take a second look at it. Yeah, and see is this really what's what it is or and, no?
1: And know that there's multiple narratives, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's you know, and that we get used to seeing things through a certain framing. And um, but what happens to like contemporary like, you know, um, cultural production by you know individuals in Islamic contexts? You know, when it's kind of um, not given that rootedness. That deep cultural those deep cultural roots and and not connected back to the, you know that continuity or the discontinuity for 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 what it's worth and that's something I really um, like to link back and my own like research was uh, has been about that as well I was very interested in um, in um, returning to early narratives of Islam and to um, um, you know somatics of um, you know, the Islamic context and looking at how they are retold and and re in the contemporary, um, as a not necessarily not necessarily from a critiquing perspective. Always there's critique in there, but as a um as a form of renewal and things like this and um and ways of um, retelling those narratives narratives of today or to translating those kind of aesthetics and some of those cultural paradigms. Um in the contemporary and uh so that's something that i'm that i enjoy and i'm into anyway so i really love being able to that's something that i find that's really a challenge as well in teaching like a contemporary world literature course or um um and you know that i appreciate in in this art uh, art history course and that i have like the entirety of history to deal with because i really do just just everything just everything you know uh because we want to be able to um to um tap into these deep cultural resonances you know you don't want to take things in a, a contemporary work of art um uh, in the flat present you know you want them to be able you want to be able to try to connect to to go deep with something and folks to, and con- to, context is key context is key absolutely yeah. absolutely no
0: i mean i i enjoy and i did say so i'm going to Pull back now. I did tell everybody we won't get two. We can get two times in the week. That. Yes, <laughs> I love it. I mean, I could do it. We could be here till tomorrow. Um, I think the important part of this is that there's other contexts going on that you might not have really thought about or been exposed to, or sort of understood that you're looking at it through a sort of a really tainted lens. That also has. Ramifications for what's going on today in, like, culture and politics and, you know, kids being crushed by collapsing buildings that have been shot down by missiles. We're not going to get into that, though. Just asking people to start thinking about that stuff. Because there's another narrative, as you said. And I think when you start to see the other narrative, things become a little more clear, and um, it's shocking, actually. It can be a shock.
1: Yeah. For sure. So
0: that's enough of that business. Next thing. When did you move to Wilmington? And uh and, and, and when did you sort of get active in sort of community organizing and stuff? Because that's always that's a big thing in here. We talk about it all the yeah, time. Yeah, of
1: course. Um, I moved here a little over three years ago. It was three years ago on Thanksgiving. Okay. So and I'm um, I forget what the the term is, but like a trailing spouse or what have you, like okay. was pulled out here um, for my my spouse's work, and I had. I'm just... glad my
0: wife's not here to hear this because I think she just falls into <laughs> the same category. <laughs> yeah.
1: But my spouse had been the trailer to Austin, our last day because that's where I did my graduate work, and we were there for about for a decade, and uh, so um, it was a good time to to make a move. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, and for me, community organizing, you know, is something that goes a ways back, um, it was actually, you know, um, community organizing kind of like sent me to grad school in a sense, like I had, uh, for me, like, um, it was, you know, it was really anti-war activism and activism around Middle Eastern things that got me, um, that was where I started. It was really with the invasion of Iraq in 2003. That was like my own political awakening and getting involved in demonstrating and writing letters and, and organizing with people. So, being active. Being active, yes. Yeah. So And and actually, it was um, during a chapter in living in New Mexico um, and um, having moved there where, um, you know, nuclear abolition movement is right close to the surface. And it's a, it reminds me a lot of Wilmington, actually, in terms of how... Um, um, easy it is to get involved with organizations and get, you know, right into um, the organizing activities. So I was really involved in, um, you know, anti-war protesting, but also in work to raise awareness around Israel-Palestine issues. And um, and I did, at that time, I did this major um, film festival. It was kind of like my culminating act uh, that kind of... St- sent me on a path, you know, uh, a two-week film festival, like, that um, was all, you know, had a ton of stuff about Israel-Palestine conflict, um, but also trying to deep, dive deeper into, you know, Arabo-Islamic culture as well, because um, I was deeply, you know, in love with this culture, with its art, and its music, and its literary traditions, and, um, so trying to give a taste of that as well as part in part of this festival um, and bringing scholars and filmmakers to like, you know, be part of it. Um, it just like got me to kind of turn the page and think maybe I should actually try to you know pursue this or whatever. So um, and that's actually what led me back to, you know, grad school. And I thought it was going to be all about like contemporary um, you know, uh, women's narratives. Really, I was really interested in in that. But um, when I got to grad school, I was definitely just pulled right back to classical, you know, early Arabic, you know, literature and uh, and Islamic history and uh, religious studies and the textual tradition. Um, anyway, so that's that's where that went. And I was like deeply, you know, uh, deeply um, submerged in my graduate studies, of course you know, various, um, solidarities were, you know, were enjoyed and uh, fostered. Uh, but when we got here to Wilmington, um, you know, one of the first things I got involved with was in addition to like finding my, my teaching positions was, um, gardening, you know, up at the Rodney Reservoir and, uh, the way I started to connect with members of the community and just talking to people, uh,
0: find your way into the, um, And this is another thing as a Wilmingtonian my whole life. I did when I went to the University of Delaware for a long time, I lived in Newark for a little bit, but I'm a Wilmingtonian really. Now, there's a lot of names for that neighborhood. Some people call it Tilden Park. Some people call it Cool Springs. That's what I call it. Some people call it depend if you're a little further towards Union Street, could be in Hilltop. But Hilltop and Little Italy,
1: they're right there.
0: So what do you how do you how do you define it? Where do you live?
1: So I live in Little Italy Little myself. Italy. Oh yes. nice. So great. So, yeah. so I went to
0: Saint I went to St. Anthony's.
1: So I live one block from St. Anthony's.
0: Oh, that's lovely. So
1: I'm right there for Nine sure. Nine Street Corridor. Yes. Yes. Nice. So I'm on 10th Street, but yes. Okay, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so mother- went,
0: yeah, so I went to St. Anthony's and we that, the, the the Rodney Reservoir obviously was right there because yeah. that whole Nine Street Corridor from there all the way up and you know the Padua being sort of like a a sister school or a, sure. a feeder school. So everything was right there. So I'm the the Rodney West Reservoir I'm hot for this topic. Yes. But uh yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Now did you when when you uh, moved to the neighborhood, did you have a a feeling for what the sort of culture was like? Did you know the festivals there and all of that stuff was there and sort of like that
1: stuff or you was it a surprise to you when you got there? Um yeah, so I didn't didn't know a ton about it, so like you know, Wilmington was like a, was a surprise. It, uh, you suggestion. know what? I, I can understand. <laughs> that. Yes. I wasn't you know planning on it, and I and I tried to bargain I, for Philadelphia. <laughs> Nobody,
0: even, I'm from here, and I wasn't planning on it. <laughs>
1: um, but you know, we you know when we started looking for a place, we definitely like you know we are you know urban urban dwellers, so we were looking for you know somewhere um, in the city with you know walkable walkable you know life and uh so but we you know we were really taken with the charm of of the neighborhood and um and my spouse is of italian heritage actually so oh, the whole yes yeah, so that really go. like appealed actually so we were on on the hunt for it so i'm not sure okay. how long it was before we learned about the festival okay but
0: maybe you got you might have gotten got a hooked into something you might have got hooked into. we
1: saw it. the little Italy, like yeah archway, like, okay, You know? I, yeah. Like, yeah. He just
0: had that feeling inside yeah. i understand i yes. understand that I yes understand
1: that. absolutely but no i you know from the beginning like i you know i'm a big you know i, I always say this i'm a big dog, dog walker so i was loving this combination of urban and green um uh, you know of people you know living close together and there being buses, and uh, you know, you know, places you can walk to, and um, also trees and flora and fauna yeah. and all that. So,
0: so let's get to it. Let's get to the this this goddamn Rodney Reservoir. Um, what the hell are we gonna do with it? Um, <laughs> so, I'm gonna tell you what I know as somebody who sort of grew up in the neighborhood. I knew it was a reservoir. Um, I knew it had to get um, blocked off because it's, it's dangerous, very dangerous, and p- potentially poisonous, I think, from what everything I've read. Um, but in the meantime, while it sat and nobody really did anything, the neighborhood was like, hey, we can at least, you know, kind of carve out a little thing for ourselves. And they've been doing that as a little community garden on a little sliver of it uh, for a little period of time. Now, this is where we are. So we're talking about the block between. 8th Street and 9th Street and uh, Rodney and Broom? Clayton. Uh, Clayton. Rodney and Clayton. Thank you. Yep. See? Oh, you
1: got me. <laughs> I, okay.
0: I, I pride myself on my, my grid knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Know um, and so it's an old reservoir that's there, um, but it's it's inactive. Uh, it's deteriorating, um, and we're trying to figure out what the hell to do with this block of the city. Um yeah, give us a little background and, and, and catch us up on what the situation is today, and then we'll kind of talk about some of the politics of it.
1: Sure. Well, um, you know, it was, um, you know, May 2022 when the city of Wilmington sought uh, $1.7 million to demolish the site with a vision of residential development, and um, the neighbors, you know, really quickly responded to, the, to that saying, you know, we didn't want, you know, we want to keep it. Keep it green, so we can come back around to that. But um, and one of the first things, you know, since I didn't have a, a whole ton of experience, I had been gardening there for about a year. I've been able to get into the garden in the, you know, the first season I was here, just like figured out people were up there and and uh, found my way to, you know, to send the email and get start gardening. You're like, and it's, hey,
0: what's what's going on up there? Yeah,
1: what is going on up That's there? How like
0: you folks, when you move into a city neighborhood, the best thing to do if you see something going on just go out there and find some people and be like what what's happening and they'll just tell you what's going on that's how it works
1: it's and I got you know I got I got keys to the place I got I got in on somebody's um, donated plot they'd already paid for their plot for the year but they weren't gardening so I got to get in there and start gardening and um, I had like gardening and stuff like that was kind of like a healing thing for me after grad school. Like it was like my rerouting myself to the earth. Uh, and uh, so, and it's so amazing up there. And I'd never quite seen anything, um, you know, this oasis like above, you know, turns out it's the highest point in Wilmington, say Rockford tower, um, you know, over this really dense area. It's amazing being up there. So it felt like a huge blessing. And when it was going to be taken away, potentially, you know, um, you know, we were reminded all the more. So, um, one of the things I started doing right then is just start doing newspaper research. And I learned a whole ton of things. So, you know, it, you know, over time, and I kept doing it. So and going to, you know, the, the Historical Society, to the Delaware Room, various places, you know, come to find out, you know, it's some of Wilmington's earliest parkland. It's always been not just infrastructure, but also served as green space back to like the 1860s. You know, originally it had open pools. Um, and, and before um and there was a, a famous baseball diamond and then later when they put in the reservoir there was this this football field um you know the there was a professional many professional football teams played up there including the Wilmington chess Rooks but there was a you know a whole like semi-pro thing of sports going on um, in the 20s there was this amazing series of concerts dances and sings including like, and they're always written about in, up in the newspapers, including, like, in the women's section of the newspaper, you know. Um, the but they, women's The section. famous women's section with flowery prose, you know. Yes. Uh, Who and, was wearing what? Yes. And they were, like, the children were rolling down the sides. And there were, like, 6,000 people on top. They all describe it as throngs, you know, throngs of people up there. Um, and um, then there was, in the 50s, there was a Women's Observer Corps because a few years after the tank went in, um, which was around um, 1916. started maybe maybe they start breaking ground right before the first of the year, but 1916. Um, they put in the tower a few years later and you could see for four states um, from there. Um, and um, so amazing views in this house you know so in the Cold War women's observer Corps, you know staring down you know anything that comes in under the radar out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colin Baltimore. Um, if they saw anything, but there's, uh, there's also some fun grandmoms calling in an airstrike. Yeah. And there was a lot of controversy later in the paper too, because like evidently the women were lonely up there. And then also they also couldn't necessarily get through to Baltimore. Like no one would answer. And so there was like a whole bunch of like people were upset, you know, um, about the program at a certain point. But so this huge history, you know, of, of, of use and indeed the, um, the gardeners that got the community garden going was no small thing. It's the largest community garden in Wilmington. You know, and it was, it launched, um, you know, it launched West Side Grows. like came out of that endeavor to create that garden, this idea of resident-driven initiatives to develop you know, for community development. Uh, so it was, you know, and it was like a scratching back, again, around 2003, 2004, under the Baker, uh, Baker administration, that um, it was fenced off and dismantled. Um, and they said they were going to revitalize it, but they did not do it. So um, and it is like the meeting pointed to watersheds. It's, like I said, the highest point in Wilmington. Um, it's a really special, unique place with this sense of history. And if you talk to people in the neighborhood, they remember sledding. They remember playing football up there. Um, people remember going to having church up there. You know, like there's. yeah. I
0: definitely remember as someone who went to St. Anthony's in the late 80s and 90s. I can remember it being a place like that you run up there, you can fool around, you know, you can throw a baseball around or whatever before it was closed off. So it's definitely a neighborhood thing yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah.
0: So what do we what do we do with it now? Like what what so the the, the city wants to demolish it and uh redevelop it in some fashion. Um, I, like you, when I hear redevelopment from the people who run the city today, very, very skeptical. Don't want, like, a high-rise or a Whole Foods there. It's not appropriate. Um, So, yeah, I mean, do I trust Mike Brzezicki and Buccini Pollen Group? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances. On the other hand, there are, I think, a cadre of community people who sort of like want it to stay exactly how it is with no changes, which I don't think is, um, reasonable. So where are we? What, what, what The I mean, there is an organization that sort of speaks for the community, which I think is necessary. And even if you don't agree with people in the organization, you should be part of the organization so you can argue about this stuff. But where is everybody now? What's the, what, what's, What's everybody thinking, and what do we think we need to do to, to come to some kind of conclusion about what to do with the city block?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, from, that, from the moment um, that that um, request for bond bill funding came forward, um, neighbors started organizing, you know, on the issue, like, the, a couple weekends later, like, more than like 50 neighbors came out for a meeting at that bus stop at 9th and Clayton. Uh, and uh, the mayor was there and several city council members were there. And, you know, to a person like they went, we went around the circle and people spoke to they wanted to keep it a green space. They wanted it to remain public um, and they, we all wanted it to be safe. So we kind of like so I'm going to speak as myself on this occasion, but I'm very involved with Green for the Greater Good, which is the um, community community organization that kind of built right. up and, and out of that. And everybody, just
0: as a caveat, everybody should understand, and this is why I said what I said a few minutes ago, No, nobody in the neighborhood is going to have exactly the same idea. It's just important that everybody sort of is involved in, like, what should be done. And nothing should be done unless people are generally agreeable to it. Yeah. Um, but I think these things have to be sort of hashed out. People yeah. need to be – people need to be to feel like they're in a position where they can say – What they want to say. So I'm glad that you said that. And I, you know, I I don't think you're speaking for sort of everyone. Yeah. But uh, the general idea. And I think you you might be able to also sort of say there's a, you know, there's a cohort of people that kind of feel like this. And there's a sort of people who feel like that. Um, Obviously, that's going to happen. So.
1: Absolutely. So, and I have talked to so, so very many neighbors about this issue too, including, you know, some who've been involved in some of the events that we've done, including like the the design sessions we did last June with people from, uh, with um, um, professors from the University of Delaware, from the Biden School, from um, uh, public policy and both, uh, and from the plant and soil sciences department, you know, we had a, a community design charrette where, Sophomores helped the community um, develop some conceptual designs for a potential future park um, at the spot. And, um, you know, that that community group started meeting every single Saturday. We've met like every Saturday since, you know, save a couple of a couple of holiday weekends here and there. Um, And, you know, initially we were, you know, really organizing around, um, you know. You know, um, from the beginning, we wanted to create a city community working group to Develop a plan to transform the site into a safe park that all could enjoy. Um, you know, and that's that's been like the big talking point we'd had from the beginning is that we really want to have a plan that takes us from where we are now to where we want to be in the future. And not we don't want to spend, you know, we think it should be comprehensive. That was one of our first wins we got was to influence the bond bill. We got language into that bond bill that said the city needed to do comprehensive planning and community development before the project got underway. And so we were working to try to get that enforced, and we also worked to get um, you know, started writing letters to ask for environmental testing of the soils at the site as well to make sure that it was safe. Not not just from the ruptured roof of the tank that was allowed to, uh, was basically neglected. You know, like trees were allowed to grow up there. So, of course, the roof was compromised with the tree roots because it just it wasn't maintained. Um, and so it it um, started to deteriorate. Um but, um, you know, that's what we've wanted all along. Um, and, but the vision, we learned so much along the way. We started to talk, you know, learn so much more about um, the benefits of greening to um, urban residents, you know, whether it's, you know, in terms of like crime reduction, whether it's about kids, you know, and their neurons knitting, you know, by having access to nature, the community, the mental health benefits, let alone, um, you know, the potential for a hectare of... Um, trees to bring down the temperatures. Uh, you know, and Delaware's like the fourth. You know, tr- on on the scale of um, states uh, facing increasing temperatures due to climate change. Delaware's we're number right, four on the list.
0: Look, we're going to be we're going to be reclaimed by the sea. First. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's even anything we can but do. But
1: we're about at the that. highest point, we're... Wilmington over here. So we got. Yes. We got we've got, we got more time. Here's the
0: thing: if we can all <laughs> pile onto this one block. That's we right. might, We might make it a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, you know? well, we're going to have to like. You know, anyway, um, you know, and the elevation up there is on top of it. The natural elevation is the highest, is that is at that height. So one of the things that we learned from people talking to them. So we had this vision for a park. You know, we started, one of the things that happened was um, we were able to, another member of the community was right there on 9th as a teacher. And uh, one of the ideas we were coming up with at the, at the moment was like, we need to get more people access to this place, you know, so that we can dream about it and figure out what it's going to be like how can we get more people access right now because that fence right now that only allows certain people in is definitely um, a pain point Um, but if you talk to people who live around there when the fence went up um, they felt safer when you talk to people around there some of them do want nothing to change Um, most people though are like we can endure this project if we know what's coming at the end, you know, and it serves the community. It serves it benefits the community, like yeah. in this way that's for all of us and it has
0: this And that's my that's my question. Uh number one, I think there's a question about whether or not the the site should be sort of demolished. Like do we need to take out the the, the concrete that's falling apart and this tank that's probably unsafe from everything I've read. The soil, because of everything that's in there, doesn't seem, seems like it could be poisoned. So the first question is, Do do does the neighborhood believe, I shouldn't say that, but is there a, is there, a, is there people behind the idea that it, that it needs to be cleaned up in some fashion? So the first thing that needs to happen is all this shit in there needs to be taken out. Is that is that that's the first thing I want to ask is where does the neighborhood stand on that question?
1: So, um, again, you know, um, diversity of opinions out there. I mean, I think, um, you know, the thing we can say is that we we want it to be safe. Um, You know, these are challenging questions for a, you know, uh, you know, Islamic studies college professor. Well, yes, but what I, I can say, say this. this. Well, here's what I'll say. I I can't say what I know. I can say what I know. Okay. Is that you know they did find, um, in 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 the sampling that's occurred. Um, so we do know that there's a 2006 engineering report that said a part of the roof is deteriorating. Um, you know, for further further conversations, we know the walls of the tank are good. The roof is bad. Um that two thousand and six engineering report was was commissioned by the city, you know, and it's its recommendation at the end was to repair it. You know it was it was, you know, it was a take hour. some action. Yeah. Right. But That's it, it,
0: the way I took it too. It's like I and again, I'm not someone who just believes everything the city's gonna tell me because I think their motives might be in question. Sure. However, everything I've read says exactly what you said. That the the top of that thing which is like the walls are fine, but nobody can get in from the sides. Right. You can only the only problem is going to be from the top, and it seems dangerous. So that's the first thing. I don't know. Like that seems like it needs to be addressed in some fashion.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. And um. And then the soil around this around the tank, um, has you know with 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 the testing that's been completed, they have found that it it has it harbors hazardous substances that are, um, that have that. Indicate a unacceptable cancer risk in the resident scenario and an unacceptable non-cancer risk in the resident children for children in the resident scenario. Now, do as well? people
0: do people who have looked at that think that that's a reasonable conclusion from the the science that they've seen? Because I, I I I know people who live there and who think like, yeah, it kind of looks like potentially the soil's poisoned, and so. We want to be very careful, and some people kind of just dismiss it out of hand. I'm sort of with the people who th- the, the the former. Yeah. So I don't know what what's the what what is the feeling there?
1: So um, yeah. So I think you know one of the things that has just been interesting that we've learned about as as time goes on, as we learned that um, you know, there is very little um, regulation around demolition. You know, this the, the resident scenario thing is about like. What the, co- what the potential harm is if you go and live on that soil. Like if you're just going to go up there and live on it um, as opposed to what happens if you like blow it up and blow it around. You know, that's what demolition and excavation is. the, the Their risk analysis also looked at um, uh, risks to uh, an exca- excavation worker, you know, who would also have, would have protective equipment and be in their cab and that kind of thing. So, you know, the um, You know, our environmental regulatory body believes that, you know, that there's, and the city believes that um, it's safe to follow through with the plan that they have, that they have. Um, And, you know, um, but there are some other regulatory things we're still trying to understand. Like, they also said that um, having discovered this risk, though, would preclude it from future um, residential development. Um, And, you know we think that they should go ahead and put that deed restriction on there now because otherwise it would mean that um, if they test the soil later after they mix, all, they munch all the concrete and dilute it with concrete, then they wouldn't have to actually do a regulated cleanup. You know, like the, the idea is like, you know, you have to do a regulated cleanup or get the deed restriction. That's kind of what we understand what the Hiska law is about. Yeah, so you either, um, you either
0: have to sp- to spend the money to really, really make it clean or you have to say you can do stuff there, but people really can't live there.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and we're also really concerned that there be um, what we've understood since there is little regulation around demolition, even like for things that, you know, are like filled with lead, they'll just like demolish it and not tell you evidently. Um, this is what I hear on the streets. I'm not an expert, though, and uh, so I'm open to learning. Um, but what DENREC has, you know, that their recipe to uh, protect public health is through dust suppression um, and those kind of mitigation techniques. So um, really pressing for, you know, air monitoring to, keep, to make sure that that's happening um, and, you um, you know, to make sure that everything is being done to protect the public health and that those hazardous substances that are up there that they have you know a you know a specific plan to to deal with them during during the process. now something else that we learned about just to pan back out um, you know, being part of the um, you know of the working group um, that got to speak with landscape architecture firms um who are, you know, so we are in the process of, you know, um, going through another set of workshops to develop a concept plan for a potential park. Um, You know, we heard from design firms that said, you know, this is an amazing site, Um, and I've learned this from other things that I've participated in as a a result of getting really active in this area, um, symposia and whatnot, um, that, you know, you should start with placemaking. You should start with the community's attachment to the place, you know, especially in a place that has had Time periods when it was vulnerable, you know, like that you want to have an engaging place that people love and are, you know, are programming that ties it to the community to help make it a safe, wonderful place. Um, so, um, but so starting with placemaking, and they told us, you know, you could make something here that was like you could never make anywhere else. And once this is gone, you can never get it back. And it is like this hulking 7.5 million concrete tank, you know, that was like a gravity, you know, you know, uh, you know, that had used gravity and its functioning because and that's why it was where it was, why it was chosen as the location for this massive um, you know, water uh, reservoir. Um, that you could tell the story of of that and uh, and of Wilmington's expansion and its, you know, investment in massive infrastructure projects like this or and maybe do it with materials um and you know and and do that process sustainably so that you could deconstruct rather than simply demolish so that you're planning from where you are right now going to the end point and try to save money along the way by you know thinking about sustainability and carbon footprint and you know in 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 the course of the project so um you know, we think that you know, there's a way to like center human health. Um, there's a way to put like sustainability in this in, in the equation, um, and then this other piece that you know, some of us have been dreaming of. And you know, it's up to the community to validate. Like from the beginning, we we're um, really strongly interested in a resident-driven vision, something that the community gets to participate in and and validate and guide. Uh, but you know, this idea of a site that is um, has programming that serves public health, you know, and public wellness, um, and also, like, has that, like, infrastructure sense that it's, you know, been engineered to help, you know, cure our environment so that we could, like, think of all these, put take all these things into consideration and use that, you know, to guide um, the project going forward. That's the, yeah. that's I, the, what we I, dream, dreamers I, dream. I, I look at it like this. Maybe you won't get the
0: perfect thing initially, but as long as there's an idea of where what, what it should look like, which I think, which I think actually, seems has been articulated. Like there's there's problems with the idea that only certain people can go to the the, the uh, garden, for example. But you you make it sort of the, for everybody. as long As long as there's a thing articulated, my thing is there shouldn't be the cost should be. Uh, you know, now obviously we're not we're not going to put every resource to it, but there should be some understanding that we should absorb a big cost. If we can give a million dollars to Bucini Pollen Group to put a fucking uh, a warehouse in Southbridge, or to put the fucking uh, Sixers Field House in land that's not even in the city, and then all of them rackets in the city, we should be able to spend the money. To clean this place up in the best way possible, that does not impact the block there, is the best. People are going to have to take some risk. let's, let's be honest. That's, that stuff's going to have to be broken up and taken out of there. And that's not, that's, that's a risk. But as long as we spend the money to do it in the most uh, sort of forward way possible, the, you know, with all the technology that we have, and then do something there that's for the community. A park, an amphitheater, uh, uh, whatever everybody wants, even a garden. I think there's space for a garden there. It's a whole city block. I mean, the, the garden right now only takes up, you know, that, you know, right, right along the street there on the top of the hill. So, you know, I, I, I hope that the, the one thing I hope is that, like, you know, money should not be an issue here. Spending an extra, and I looked at some of the figures that were sent to me about cleaning that place up. We should spend that money, but if uh, if the idea is that we have to convince people that we should or that it's a good risk to take, maybe that's the that's the avenue we need to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's what I hope.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, so um, so a, a couple of things about the plan. So the city's plan is to not to actually take materials site. it's to munch. The concrete of the tank and bury it there. Turn um, so
0: like it all up and jam it down. In the yeah, ground. yeah. So that's
1: something interesting as you learn more about this. That's what uh, that's what makes um, you know concrete is actually um, silica is actually you know airborne silica is really dangerous to human health. You know, it's it creates, very dangerous. Yeah, uh, asthma and COPD and all these things. So that's the
0: thing. And, and again, I hope I I didn't say anything specifically about like taking care that like we use the technology to keep the risk down in the neighborhood churning up that concrete is extremely dangerous yeah so you know care needs to be taken if that's the direction people go for sure
1: so and one of the things that we've been you know thinking about all along too is that you know what we understand what i've learned from others around me who have experience in like development activities is that you know you know even in park development that um you need a design to attract funding so there is will to work on fundraising, to partner with the city, to raise funds, and there's all different kinds of funds out there to build a cool, um, resiliency-oriented park. As so, you and, said
0: before, everybody has to agree, agree on what it's going to be at the end, and we've to spend had, the money to do what the thing is to hear. Right?
1: And so yeah. far, we've had great validation. Uh, there's been great, you know, um, so again, and, um, and so we're talking a lot here about, like, work that's been done. Uh, um, um I'll say this again about the uh, community design charrette we did last June. Um, you know, over 80 neighbors participated in that. And we came away with a vision for a nature-focused park where um, residents could get away from um, the, you know, urban density that is our neighborhood. And there's some other things. You know, and this, 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 this vision um, jives with the 2028 um, um, comprehensive plan. And with with objectives that are in there and the Resilient Wilmington report. Um, and even if you go back to like the last West Side um, plan as well, um, again, one of the uh, challenges they said for that exists for like that neighborhood right there where we are is that um, density is an issue. And, and, and that, um, you know, with green space, like you really have to work in your historic footprint because there's no more space to develop. Yeah, there's pocket parks and things like this, but we are talking about like, um, like immersive natural, you know, spaces, or this idea of like a natural space that could actually impact the environment, which is this three point seven eight acre spot could do. So, um, and that you know we do need to be addressing things like food deserts, and that we need to address uh, the social determinants of health. We have St. Francis Hospital right there that's that's transitioning to becoming a um, a community health hub idea with like multiple services on site, and we have schools nearby. Um, You know, there's many, like, stakeholders that could engage with this green space. And and from the beginning, we started talking to, like, partners that do youth development um, and, um, you know, workforce development and things like that. How could this site, like, serve all these interests all at once and provide recreation and provide community gathering space and provide um you know um meditative space if you will and one of the things going back to what everybody what you hear from people who are connected to the space say they, they feel that they love the elevation up there and, you know there's this sense of being outside the city not that it needs to stay the way it is but that is one of the things that we've been pressing for all along is that some element of you know the historic footprint be preserved that some element of this you know um, of the topography I don't know if you've ever walked up Howland. It is funny it's so funny that
0: you say that because that's the one thing, just to bring it back full circle, the one thing I always remember being a kid and walking east from Saint is, is that you get to this spot where it's there and it's it's you can't really see it. It's above your head, you know? Even when the fence wasn't there, it was like you had to walk up there. Yeah. And from the street level, you couldn't see it. So it was like a whole other place. Yeah. And um, yeah, some of that, you know, people dig that. That's why they live in the neighborhood. That's why they've lived there for 30, 40 years, and and they want, you know, they want that aspect to it. And I think it's important.
1: And some people who live right there on Eighth too have asked, like, so what's it gonna? Can they three D model for us what it's gonna what it's gonna look well, like at my front door? To, those people <laughs> need to relax. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> look! Look! The one thing I'm saying, I'm from that neighborhood again. I went to St. Anthony's. My my grandmother's from that neighborhood. Some people just need to relax, but you know we're not going to get it, we're not going to get a 3D model. It's going to look like the way it looks. But you know <laughs> those people are crazy. See, I know some of those people, and they're nuts.
1: Well, uh, you know, you know, I think. Um you know, the concern that we have—so we're going to see what the, what comes back on these bids to um, see what it's actually going to cost to do the demolition project. But we would like to see—you know, I personally would like to see some of this money going towards demo. Like, could it be, you know, folded into, like, a park, actually? You know, like, be part—could we could we look at—integrate um, the project so that we are going from where we are now to where we want to go to—so we have a phased— um, look at this. We're not going to end up with a flat field, you know, um, and then have to wait to see if something else happens. Like, let's let's uh, plan it from here to there and see how we can use some of this money to move us towards our park. You know, yeah. think
0: about what you want and, and, and do and, the and, stuff and to get to to get you to get to what you you, you want rather than just take a step in the, in the dark.
1: Right. So and and so and what so the community is developing a vision. So out of that um, design charrette that we had in June, you know, again, like we had the strong vision for our nature focused park um, that builds on the kind of urban ag tradition, expands with outdoor recreation opportunities. Things like all kinds of ideas that people were interested in, like an outdoor classroom to serve, um, you know, the children. And like there's a head start nearby, there's schools nearby um, that there could be. you know, public art, all kinds of things. Um, citizen science, people came up with this idea of wanting like a PG park, not just a G park, but a multi-generational park where everybody could enjoy and a park that was interactive where you went to go do things. Um, and, and, and that a park that didn't repeat what was everywhere else. So if you're going to have a playground, maybe it could be like a naturescape area or something like that, you know, um, These kinds of things. So, And then fast forward to where we are now. There's been another series of workshops that, again, was taking this, um, that's been led by this uh, landscape architect that the city hired um, for this process. And, you know, again, like they saw strong, um, again, confirmation that people are interested in this like nature-focused park. It's something that people are into. It's an idea that they're into. um, Again, that serves everyone. And the number one thing was that that was on the top of that list and you know, is that universally accessible. So this is, like, for people of all ages and abilities. So that it needs to be, like, um, you know, that we use that universal principle of design so that, you know, everybody can access the space and that it's uh, maybe even um, attuned, especially to differently abled people, um, you know, as well, not just, um, you know, standard um, that we see at other parks.
0: Well, here's what I'm going to say. This is my last comment on this, and then we're going to, Folks, then we're going to have a good time that you can't listen to. I think, because you know who's good about this in the city, is the Delaware Center for Horticulture. Have you ever spoken to the Delaware Center for Horticulture? Yeah. They're right over here. Yes. I feel like they can put something up there, make it very pretty. I could go over there. I could read my book. I could get stoned. We Maybe we have to get with the Delaware Center for Horticulture. I don't know. But Jamila, I, I have to tell you, thank you for very much for coming in.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation, for for, for you know welcoming me here and for the conversation. I appreciate the uh, the talk.
0: Thank you. I I I'm excited about this particular spot uh, because I'm, I have some roots in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I'm really happy that you came in and talk. And I'm also happy that you came in to talk about uh, Middle Eastern Islamic literature, or not. That specifically because we look, we didn't get that intellectual. Focus. Oh, we didn't
1: scratch the surface. We didn't on even that. scratch the surface,
0: <laughs> barely. So I look for those of you who said it was boring, too intellectual, all that bullshit. We talked about it for maybe twenty-five minutes, maybe. So that's enough. Well, he, look, Carl's already like, man, eh, maybe he was thirty-five. <laughs> He's already doing this with his head. So, folks, here's the last thing we're going to play for you now—a very important sort of clip that I came across uh right before he died Edward Said uh had a <clears throat> interview with Tariq Ali and this kind of goes to what I said at the beginning about people need to um to, th- to think outside the box they need to uh think that there there could be they they don't they, want, they don't need to capitulate that's what he says that's what Said says you don't need to capitulate you can, uh, you can decide your own fate and try that. It doesn't seem like it's realistic all the time, uh, but you can. You don't have to accept the framing that you're told to accept when you look at literature, when you look at politics. You don't have to accept that. So just listen listen to what the goat says right now. Carl's going to clip it in. And uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Jamila,
1: thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. Left is best. And
0: from the river to the sea, one kind or another.
2: Edward, in one of your recent books, uh, the book on music, you've written, and I want to read this to you. No social system, no historical vision, no theoretical totalization, no matter how powerful can exhaust all the alternatives or practices that exist within its domain. There is always the possibility to transgress. Now you've written this about music, but it applies to virtually everything, doesn't it? Does. it? Yeah, because okay. I, I I mean it really as a kind of social fact that there's always an opportunity, no matter how one feels oneself sort of up against the wall and there's no other alternative but to say submit, which is usually what it's all about in the end. There's always an opportunity to do something else. There's always an, an opportunity to formulate an alternative and not either to remain silent or to capitulate. And I, I think it's the most important social precept for me uh, and really in a certain sense sort of governs, in my opinion, uh, my understanding of politics. Uh, because if politics is simply, as it's supposed to be according to neorealism and pragmatism and all the, the other schools that sort of rule the day, if politics is simply the art of the possible and the art of the conclusive and the, the, the art of the compromise, I think it's the role of the intellectual always to be asserting the alternative.